Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. If you've ever been in a difficult relationship of misunderstanding and hurt, then you'll identify with the overarching theme of 2 Corinthians. Paul and the congregation that he founded are embroiled in quite a squabble, and so he's writing to restore relationship and trust, as well as exhort them to excel in Christian disciplines. Now let's join Pastor Ross with another message from the book of 2 Corinthians. All right, we're ready to begin. New book. For study this evening, 2 Corinthians, a little bit different, as I've been mentioning normally for the last 15 years, we've been in the Old Testament on our midweek study, and uh, we are going to handle 2 Corinthians, the whole book, uh, on Wednesday night. Now, we'll look forward to uh, all the beautiful insights that are waiting for us. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we look to you this evening. We acknowledge that these words are not from any man, but the Holy Spirit dictated them through holy men of old as the Spirit carried them along, Lord. And so we just thank you for your God-breathed word, the inspiration of the word of God that sets our hearts free. So help us to uh, hear your word, put it into practice, and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. A couple Sundays ago, we were in Mark chapter 10, of course, and one of the passages had James and John, two brothers, jockeying for positions of honor, and they asked Jesus uh, this request to be seated on Jesus' right side and left in heaven. Well, Jesus effectively sidestepped that question and just kind of went to the heart of the issue, which was their wrong motivations and all of that. Uh, He said, those positions are going to whom they have been prepared. And um, that was an effective answer. So I started thinking, I wonder who's going to be seated at Jesus' right hand. And if I were to wager a guess, I would think possibly the Apostle Paul, the author of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit of 2 Corinthians, the book that we'll be studying for the next few weeks. So Paul the Apostle, you remember him, a former Pharisee, a fierce killer of Christians, then turning into being transformed by God's grace into a faithful crusader for Christ and almost single-handedly evangelizing the the then-known world, the Roman Empire, And of course, he had a good team, but he's known for writing 13 New Testament books, maybe planting up to 20 churches, relentlessly and ruthlessly persecuted, endured it all with a godly attitude, with faithfulness and a soft heart, humility, extraordinary suffering. And then he was martyred and executed. So 
Those are the kinds of things that I would think would go into somebody positioned in a seat of honor next to Christ. You know, Paul was like a Timex watch from the, the, the slogan from the 70s. He, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. There was just nothing you could do to that man to stop him from loving the Lord, loving his people, and evangelizing uh, lost souls. And so... The testimony, his testimony was the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and people were praising God because of him. So no, I won't be surprised to see the Apostle Paul seated at the right or the left side of Jesus. And certainly he drank from the cup, that same cup, that same baptism of suffering. Now one of those 20 churches and Two of those 13 New Testament epistles have to do uh, with a place called Corinth. So it was a place of uh, great accomplishment, but it was also a place of great suffering, too, for Paul. Now, uh, the ancient ruins are still there, right there. So you can make a trip to modern-day Corinthos, Corinthos, same place there. And uh, these are the ruins of the temple of Aphrodite. And uh, Corinth was known for its idol worship. And it was a port city. It was just, let me show you an artist's rendering. So it was quite a city. You see, you can kind of see the ocean there. Uh, it, it was a port city. And it, it just made it uh, really kind of added to its uh, immorality with the uh, temple to Aphrodite and Apollos and all of these merchant ships coming in and, and all of this uh, hustle and bustle. Uh, Acts chapter 18 shows, tells us about how the gospel first came there. Why don't we go to that map? So I like showing maps. The first Gentile church was at Antioch, right around here on the border of Turkey and Syria the very first non-Jewish church. And they were a missionary-minded church. And they sent Paul on three missionary journeys. On his second missionary journey, he went back to check on the churches that he had already planted the first missionary journey. And so he went from Antioch across modern-day uh, Turkey all the way here, checking on churches along the way. You know the seven churches of Asia? This is called Asia in the Bible. The seven churches in Revelation, they're all in modern-day Turkey. All right, and so when he gets here, he gets a vision from uh, the man of Macedonia, right? So he's over here. He's like, where do we go, Lord? And the gospel went to Europe for the very first time to a place called Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. It was called Macedonia back in the day. There's still such a place as Macedonia, of course, but the borders are different. So now it would be modern-day Greece. So from, uh, the, in fact, Kavala is Philippi. And so he comes down Philippi, and he started a church there, and then he started a church in Thessalonica, right here, where he spent three Sabbath days and planted a church there. And then he went a little ways to Berea, where they were more noble, because they were checking the scriptures out to make sure that he was telling the truth, right? And so then he, he went down to Athens and he had some debates with the philosophers, right? And then the Holy Spirit led him to a place called Corinthos, Corinth. 
So you see Corinth over here as well. And so here, here, here they were at Corinth. And so that's how it came, the gospel came to a place called Corinth. Now, uh, Acts chapter 18 tells you how the church got founded, and that's important for the study uh, to understand the context of this second letter. And so you can keep the map up there just as I kind of get situated. It began um, first in the synagogue. So Paul would go to the synagogue where there was a foundation of the Hebrew scriptures. So after a few weeks there, they booted him out. They, they, they caused a riot. And he went next door to the Gentile, a non-Jewish believer. And they started a church next door to the synagogue. Well, the, the, the church outgrew the synagogue. And that made everybody in the synagogue crazy. And so they hauled him out, created a riot. And there was a beat down. It was terrible. Uh, they beat everybody up there, right in front of the governing, governing uh, attendance there. So, uh, so what happened then is, is that uh, all hell broke loose, right? But he ended up staying about 18 months in Corinth. Now, uh, after he planted the church, he went to Ephesus. So he left Corinth, and he went to Ephesus is around... Around here, it's probably, it says there. All right, so he's back in Turkey. He gets word that the church isn't doing very well. So he writes 1 Corinthians. And so he addresses the problems, divisions. Uh, there were people saying, oh, I like Paul the best. You know, and there were others saying, well, I like Apollos. He's a better speaker. Well, I like Peter because Peter came to visit. These guys had the best pastors in the world, Silas and Luke and Timothy and all of these guys were coming in and going out. And uh, so the church was sort of dividing and saying, you know, I like this guy better than the other pastor and all of that. There was sexual immorality. They were suing each other over dumb little things. They were carousing at the home fellowship groups, getting drunk on the communion wine and being immoral. Right? And so these are the issues 1 Corinthians had to address because somebody went to him in Ephesus and said, you're not going to believe this. And while all of that was going on in Corinth, they're called the Church of God. They're messed up, but they're a real, genuine church. And not only that, the whole time they're doing things like that, they're speaking in tongues. They're obsessed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so that just goes to show you, you can be speaking in tongues and be a spirit-filled believer and be really messed up. Because he said, let me show you a better way of how to live in love. And so he went to 1 Corinthians 13, right? So that's the issue. Now in 1 Corinthians, he said, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going I'm to confront you guys. Do you want me to come in love or do you want me to come with a rod? He says, of discipline, because I'll come there and God's powerful dealing with you. Do you. Which do you want? And what happened is, and we find out from 2 Corinthians that he went with a rod. So he had to show up. They weren't repenting. And he went to say, hey, listen, about this, this guy had a relationship with his father's, his stepmother, his father's new wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a whole section on it, right? And so... Uh, he had to go and put people in place, and he, and he left that situation. It's called the painful visit. 
he left that, he refers to it as the painful visit, right? And so the painful visit happens in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and he also writes a letter that's called the painful letter, and that's in between the two of them too. So really, so the occasion for the second letter now, Paul was visiting the Philippians, so he's up here. So he's, he's at least he's in Europe. So, uh, so Titus comes to him and says, hey, listen, the painful visit wasn't uh, that bad. There, there, there's some good news and bad news. And so he said, the good news, Paul, um, is that there's some positive changes happening. People are getting on board. They're healing up and they're growing in Christ. Here's the bad news. The bad news is some, some people got really offended. And the associate pastor wannabes, they want to undermine your relationship with the Corinthians because they want to take over as pastors. And so they've made up a bunch of stuff and they're offended. And some of the people uh, that you put into place during the painful visit are mad and upset and they're, they're gossiping and slandering you and creating all kinds of problems. And here's what they're saying. They're saying you're untrustworthy, you're a manipulator, you're a fraud, you're insincere. I'm quoting 2 Corinthians because he's going to answer these things. You're untrustworthy, you're a manipulator, you're a fraud, you're an imposter, you're theologically unbalanced, you're a terrible speaker, you're weak, and you're always in trouble. They're always putting you in jail. There must be a reason for that. And not only that, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny, or you know, that kind of thing. I mean, they, they, they said he was lacking credentials, Paul the Apostle. <laughs> but here's the big ticket item. The big ticket item, that the list that topped Paul's foibles, if you will, that uh, leads us into chapter one of this great letter. He made a promise when he was there at the painful visit. And he said... In a month, I'm coming back. No worries. I'll be back in a month. Well, his plans changed, and he didn't come back in a month. Well, that was the tear of the scab off the wound. And the false teachers went ballistic and said, look, he doesn't care about you. He says one thing. He talks out of two sides of his mouth and his letters. He's kind of hinting that he's coming and then he's not coming and then all of this. And so this was the big thing that his detractors really seized on. He's not a man of his word. You can't trust him. Write him off and let us, the super pastors, pastor you instead. And so when Paul heard that, he took out a piece of parchment paper and a pen and started to write 2 Corinthians as a defense to his ministry, his motives, and uh, try to repair and reconcile with them about this, these terrible uh, accusations, the damage to his reputation, and to vindicate uh, his uh, mo motives. Or else, let, let all of that work go and let the false teachers get in there and take that beautiful work of God and, and, and drive it off a cliff somewhere uh, with their crazy teaching. And so 2 Corinthians, you're going to hear more about Paul's personal life than any other book because he's talking about. So 1 Corinthians is about the problems in the church. 2 Corinthians is about their problem with Paul. So Paul is going to 
answer those problems. So what's here for you and for me tonight? A lot, trust me, and in the weeks to come. The great value of 2 Corinthians is how to get along with the people of God, how to resolve misunderstandings, how to handle rejection, how to promote unity, how to have an attitude and the behavior that strives for peace, and how to deal when you get your feelings hurt. Anybody relate to any of that? <laughs> Anybody ever get your feelings hurt? Anyone, uh, anyone uh, need to allow love to cover a multitude of sins? That's what this is all about. So here we go with Second uh, Corinthians. The, the screen can go blank for now. Let me tell you, verses 1 through 11, he opens with uh, something that we've already discussed because during the fires, I preached five sermons in a series called Through the Fires, Messages of Comfort. Forty uh, uh, families from our fellowship lost their homes. And so one of my texts was the first 11 verses. And so if you're interested in a verse-by-verse study, an explanation uh, of verses 1 through 11, I'll sum it up here, but they're available to listen on our app or our website. So we saw back in October, here, opening to chapter 1, uh, Paul's opening thoughts were not on the conflict initially that they're having, but rather on the comfort that we share. So smart, right? So he started off just praising God. I'll just sum it up for you, and then we'll dive into starting at verse 12. Uh, the church... Uh, was undergoing persecution, so and so was he. And so he's talking about the comfort that we share in Christ. And so he's praising God as the source of all comfort that he delivered them and, and Paul and his team and how the Lord was using even suffering. And so he tells them in those opening verses that, hey, you guys, we want you to know this. We almost died. He's telling the church that he planted, who he led them to faith, who their noses are out of joint with him right now. But he's going to start a letter that they're in the midst of this big, uh, sensitive, uh, embroiled relationship by saying, I almost died. So he's starting to say, listen, uh, the Holy Spirit strategy, look at this. Look at the God of comfort who comforts us and carries us through. And are you really going to pick a fight with the father of your faith who just almost died? And so there's a softening of the heart to say, hey, can we start this conversation by, and the Holy Spirit, by you guys seeing he risks his life for the gospel and he almost just died. So maybe now with that preface, They'll be able to soften their hard hearts and listen to the guy who's going to plead for understanding and for grace and for reconciliation. But it was a great way to start. And so 1 through 11, just saying, um, praise God that we have God, the God of all comfort to comfort us in all of our troubles and who's using even this persecution that you guys are facing and that I face uh, for our good. So then now it's time to get to the big elephant in the room because they're mad at him and they're not speaking and all of this problem and you, you let us down and there's this huge misunderstanding. 
And so uh, here it goes. Here's the key verse. I think I, I sent it over. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. If you look up key verse for 2 Corinthians, this is what will come up. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. And the companion text to that is, if I'm willing to spend everything for you, if I love you more, will you love me less? That's a quote from him. It's, it's further along, chapter 12, verse 24. And so that's the key verse, so we're off and running. Now, it's not just about their relationship. There are some moral issues in church life. There are two full chapters on giving, the discipline of tithing and offerings. And so we'll take a look at that. But now to the conflict. So here's 12 through 14. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationship with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. That was one of the accusations. So they're cryptic, and he means one thing, he says another thing. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, then first of all, uh, Paul's boast. Paul's boast. He boasts of a clean conscience. He's saying we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, this is a misunderstanding. This is something just that just, just kind of started and, and kind of got blown out of proportion. And uh, it's, it's, we, we, we have a clean conscience before God. Now, uh, normally, I, I um, like to advise Christians not to respond to slander or gossip. And generally speaking, that's pretty uh, smart. Now, it depends. If there's nothing to be gained, because he's going to defend himself. He's going to vindicate himself. He's going to not make excuses, but he's going to say, this is the situation. You're thinking this. I'm being accused of this. This is the real deal. Now, normally, I mean, it depends. If there's nothing to be gained, no relationship to salvage, if the person is unreasonable and, and doesn't value uh, the, the relationship and is irrational, then no, you should not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. That's Proverbs 26.4. Don't get on to his level because Every time you try to answer that kind of situation where there's nothing to gain, right? Then they're going to use that for ammunition and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So he says, have the discernment to know when is a time to defend yourself and try to bring clarity. If there's something to gain and save, if there's value there, then by all means, you know, if you're going to lose life or limb, you know, get a lawyer, Really, honestly, that's the kind of the deal here. Now, now, if there's hope for reconciliation and the person is generally rational and reasonable and there's a relationship worth fighting for or there's going to be grave cost to people, then, of course, clarify and defend and vindicate. But if the, if the person 
doesn't value, as I said. It's kind of like casting something sacred like pearls before barnyard animals. He says, Jesus said, don't do that. So have the discernment to know in the situation, when do I respond and when do I not? And here, Paul is going to take 13 chapters to respond. Because why? They're valuable. This is his life's work. This is a church he planted. These guys are going to get control and take the church to a place they shouldn't go and do, do some harm. And so he's going to do the, the work of saying, let's talk about this. And so Paul's boasting right away. Tricky, tricky to use the word boast. And he does it 25 times. Now, to, to boast in the Bible is, is hard on our modern ears, right? Because it has the connotation of, uh, and rightfully so, of being so often negative and condemned. It's associated with arrogance, with ugly bragging, with audacity. Boasting of this kind is prohibited, right? It shows contempt for other people and that self-exalting, terrible thing. So, um, you know, boasting... He, he says the false teachers boast in the way that the world does. So there's a worldly way of boasting, but his is sanctified. So all through this letter, he's going to say, this is my boast, this is my boast. And he means, this is what I can take pride in. Given that all good things come by God's grace, and we know that we don't boast in anything except the cross of Christ and of God. And so to take pride in what God has done in us and through us, to appreciate and to acknowledge hard work in others, to be able to say, I'm proud of the staff. That is not a bad thing to say. Or I'm proud of my kids. Or I'm proud of this church. Paul the Apostle said, I boast about you Thessalonians about how you're handling your trials and you're so young in your Christian faith. He says, I boast about it. You see, it's a slippery slope. I, don't, I think the Apostle Paul knows how to do that. I wouldn't recommend that. I, I mean, I just think it just, you know, we start saying, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just taking pride. It's a sanctified pride. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I hope it is, but, you know. So here, notice his, his boasting is saying, listen, number one, God's our witness in the sight of God. Any virtues he's going to list, notice in verse 12, that he acknowledges they come from God. So in verse 12, he says, I can assure you in my conscience, in God's sight, holiness and sincerity, do you see in the text, by God's grace, you see, he's boasting, but he knows it comes from God. He's saying the way we conducted ourselves in holiness, moral purity, sincerity, which includes the way I made plans. And that's the big deal. You made plans. You told us you were going to be there. And then, whoops, you don't even text us. No email, nothing, you know? And so to visit them, right? He made plans, which ended up not happening, which caused a great uproar. So in verse 14, he says, don't you know me better than that? I think you need to get to know us better. And that's the whole point is to give more information. Uh, he's saying, I'm not one who uh, uh, vacillates or is indecisive. You know, they're saying, 
I'm stringing you along. I'm not stringing you along. We'll get into all of that. So 12b and 13 in front of you, the verses, he's saying, it wasn't in a flippant way that I just decided. There's nothing cryptic or hidden in my letters. I just write simply to you. I didn't write anything you couldn't understand or read. You know, So I said what I meant. I meant what I said, I'll be seeing, he probably said at the painful visit, okay, I'll be seeing you in the winter. And maybe he picked a date. And then he didn't show up. And then, and then the distractors went crazy with that. So he's saying, uh, why did I say that? Why do you think I said to you, I'm going to be there in the winter? I fully intended on, do I make plans the way the world does with worldly wisdom? So we go on. Because I was confident in this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia, Philippi, and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea, back home. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I make plans in a worldly manner so in the same breath I say, yeah, yes, no, no. So he's answering the accusations that he's just, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't really take time to think through anything. And so uh, anyway, Paul's plan now. So number two, Paul's plan. He said, I, I made it in love. I put thought and prayer into it. It was sincere. It's not flippant. And he says, actually, to tell you the truth, I plan to come and see you guys and I arranged my schedule so I would see you twice, not just once. So I wanted to come on the way somewhere and then on the way back to see you again. And so it was out of love. And so the way the world makes plans, he says, that's not for me. The way the world makes plans is what's in it for me, what seems good for the moment, what will profit me, what's convenient, what makes me happy. Are you happy in your marriage? Because that's the most important thing. Because if you're not happy in your marriage, then you have grounds for divorce. That's not what God says, but it's worldly wisdom, you see. So he's saying, I'm being accused of having worldly wisdom where I just go, yeah, I think I'll go do this, or ah, surprise, JK, I'm not going to go and do that. Do I make plans like that? Do I think like the world? No, I don't. I don't make plans just on my feelings alone of what feels good because what feels good can be bad and wrong. And what feels difficult and hard could be good and right. So the world will sing, this is worldly wisdom. He's saying, I, I didn't make my plans with worldly wisdom. He's saying, the world sings, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. Uh, yeah, it can be wrong. <laughs> Sheesh. And so, conversely, if you're not making your plans with worldly uh, thinking or wisdom, um, then what's godly wisdom look like? Well, number one, you don't make plans without praying. So prayerful. Number two, it's in accordance with Scripture. Doesn't, it aligns with Scripture. It doesn't uh, contradict it. Uh, thirdly, it would be helpful and beneficial to others or helpful to your character. Uh, it advances the gospel. It strengthens the church. And then, you know, you've got to be flexible because you make plans 
and things happen. So Pastor Chuck used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. All right, so here's what he did. He made plans. They were thoughtful. They were prayerful. He fully intended to keep that, that, that date, right? But it didn't work out, and it didn't mean that Paul was being superficial or duplicious. Uh, when he didn't show up, it didn't mean he didn't care. It means even Paul's plans are subject to change because given what he knew at the time and how he was praying and how it seemed right and good, a month seemed to be right. It should be right. But then he's asking really, you know, why would you even assume I would do anything to intentionally hurt you? That's really what he's getting at. The entire premise of such a rejection of him is an insult. He's going to argue, I planted the church. I'm your father in the faith. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, even if you have 10,000 mentors in Christ, you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father. So he's saying you can have a thousand, 10,000 associate pastors and counselors and all your friends and everybody else, but you only have one of me. And I'm the guy who led you to the Lord, so why would I do anything to try to hurt you? But they're not thinking clearly. So he has to spend chapters saying, hey, come on, let's think through this. Maybe something else here is going on. So yeah, the Corinthians were not being flexible. They were being duped because they hardened their hearts and they got cynical, you know? They saw an offense where there was none. So we got Paul's boast, clean conscience, guys. We didn't, nothing up our sleeves our plans changed. That's all that happened. And then secondly, uh, Paul's plans were born out of sincere love. They were prayerful and thoughtful and fully intended to, to follow through with keeping his promise. Now, the best laid plans of mice and men and missionaries like Paul often go awry, right? You obviously have not heard that quote, so I'm not even going to comment about it. So there. Okay, moving on. Let's go further now. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no, maybe so. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what to come. So Paul is the quintessential preacher. He is a preacher because now he's going to say, listen, okay, you're all upset. I made some plans. They didn't come through for whatever reason, which he'll explain later. But he's going to say, hey, stop looking at me. Look at God, because God makes plans and promises, and you'll never be disappointed. So he's saying, hey, even me, you look to me, you're going to be disappointed. Now, he's not guilty. He didn't really do anything wrong to disappoint them, but he still disappointed them nonetheless. But he's saying, now let me tell you about God. 
Let me bring this back to the gospel. Let me tell you about a God who will never let you down. So get your eyes off of me and all the other guys there. So if you never want to be disappointed and you want to know somebody who always keeps his word, no matter what, it'll be the Lord, right? So a third point here. So it's Paul's boast, Paul's plans, and Paul's message here is God is faithful. Man is fallible. You know, he says, we can't see into the, into the future. We don't know if it's going to rain the whole week when we go to Israel. It's possible. But we don't know that. So if it rains and you come back and you're all mad, right? No, no. <laughs> Things change with us. But God, you know, he, he says, listen. Continuing his defense, as Christians, we strive to be like the Lord Jesus, who is faithful and he is consistent uh, with his own promises and his word. So here's what he's saying. Listen, we need to practice what we preach. If we preach a consistent, faithful Jesus, we must make consistent, faithful statements and follow through. So he's saying, that's what I try to do. So I wouldn't be, yes, yes, maybe so, no, no, try to kind of say, oh, I'll come and change my mind at a drop of a hat. God doesn't do that, so I wouldn't do that. That's not the Jesus I preach to you, so why would I do that? Because I'm imitating Jesus. See, that's what he's doing here. He's gonna, but he's going to go more because he's a preacher, so he's going to just make it bigger and bigger. So he's going to say, since God is not yes one day, no the next. So he doesn't say, I love you today, but I don't love you tomorrow. Or I'm with you today and I'm not with you tomorrow. Or you're saved today and whoops, maybe not tomorrow. He's not like that. So he says, neither are we. And so even Balaam in Numbers 23 says, does God speak and not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? So... And, and, the, and here's the beautiful verse that comes out of all of this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Have you ever wondered, what does that totally mean? It means this. God the Father is saying that Jesus, his son, is his yes to every promise he's ever made. So in other words, he's saying, Jesus fulfills everything I've ever said. God the Father. All the promises, everything God has for you is always yes. Am I forgiven in Christ? Yes. Can I have new mercy? Yes. Can I, get, can I start all over as if I never did this again? Yes. Are the gates of heaven going to open up for me even though I'm X, Y, and Z? Did you put your faith in Christ? Did you confess your sins? Did you turn away? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Are you with me today? Yes. Are you for me today? Yes. My heart condemns me. Are you still for me? Yes, in Christ. Christ is the big yes. You know what's cool? In Japanese, the way to say Jesus is yes. <laughs> so it's really kind of cool. And Lord is sama, right? So you say yes, sama. It's really just awesome that Jesus' name is yes. You know, it sounds like yes anyway. But And so that, that's exactly what he's saying. Yes to grace, yes to mercy, yes to a million chances. And then he says, and we say back to God's yes, amen. That's true. You see, that's our part. 
He says yes, and we don't say, really? We, <laughs> we don't say, well, it doesn't feel like it. We don't say that. He says yes, 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 and we say, that's true, that's true, that's true. That's what amen means in Hebrew, right? So that's what's going on there. And he continues 21 through 22 with the loyalty of God to us. So he's on this thing, like, stop looking at me. Yeah, okay, you got your feelings hurt. Look to God, you'll never get your feelings hurt. Stop putting so much emphasis on me. And I didn't show up, and now your whole life is ruined. You're wondering, should I even go to church anymore? It's like, take your eyes off of the man and put them on the Lord because you'll never be disappointed because his yes is yes, always. So 21 and 22, the loyalty of God, he keeps his word. God will always keep you in the relationship with his yes, with his Christ. God will do that. He says, God will cause you to stand firm in Christ. It's a business term that means to guarantee or to honor a contract. And so he's on that theme of God's contracted with you. And he's given you the Holy Spirit as a deposit. And in your text, the word deposit means the same word as engagement ring. So he's saying when God proposes and gives you an engagement ring, you are going to get married. There's going to be a wedding. And he's given you the Holy Spirit as a seal who's anointed you, he's covered you, and he is in you, and he's guaranteed he's the deposit of the good things to come. So what he's saying is, his yes to you is so yes that it's already over. You're already seated in heavenly places now, In God's mind, you're already there, and all you have to do is walk it out. And the reason you know that you're already there is because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is proof that you're already going to be there. Not yet, already. He says, just walk it out, walk it out. So regarding your salvation, man, it's over. (laughs) It's done. You're seated, you're there. Long story short now, in that last paragraph, in the world expect, yes, no, maybe so, but with God it's always yes, every single promise, yes, yes, yes. I believe it's time to finish up. Here we go. I call God as my witness. He's serious. He's going to convince them, I didn't hurt you. I love you. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I didn't come back to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it's by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I wouldn't make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, Who's left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So finally, Paul's explanation that spills over four verses into chapter two. By the way, the, the, the um, chapter uh, separations didn't come for I don't know how long. 
uh, they started in uh, about the 1600s, right? And they're not necessarily inspired. So once in a while, like this, it's like he's in the middle of a thought, people. Why don't you put him put the end of the chapter there? So uh, that's why we go on for a few verses here. So he says, now, now he calls God as his witness. So Paul's explanation, note-taker's final point. So first he called his conscience as a witness. Now he's calling God. And he said, God knows our hearts, and he knows if my conscience is right or not. So here's the deal. He says, I couldn't bear the thought of, not, of hurting you again. So chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, One painful visit was enough. I made up my mind. In the Greek, it means to judge, to evaluate, to carefully consider, prayerfully, not to make another painful visit. So they knew the details of that painful visit. We don't. We get hints in this letter of what's going on. So apparently one guy, and there'll be hints of it to come, one guy either committed a crime or was immoral in some way, or he, he did something terrible, aggression, something, and it caused a whole church split. And so Paul had to excommunicate him. So most of the church was on board, but a quarter of the church was not. And so that's what's going on. So he made that painful visit. There were tears. There were families leaving the church. There's all of this mess and everything was raw. He leaves and he thinks, he says to himself, I can't go back there yet. He just didn't feel right. He says, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to make them cry again. You know, the very ones that I'm supposed to show up and they're supposed to be happy, the Apostle Paul's, you know, Papa Paul is back. And they're all like, oh, Papa Paul again and rip the scab off again and talk about the same thing. It wasn't the right timing. So he says, in God's sight, it wasn't the right time. I didn't want to hurt you guys. And he goes on to say, listen, a repeat visit would really be the wrong thing to do. So he sent a letter instead, verse 3, and, and that wasn't really uh, well-received either. And so that's why he's talking. Now he's writing. Second Corinthians is actually the fourth letter to the Corinthians. There was one before 1 Corinthians. There was 1 Corinthians. There's the painful letter in between 1 and 2 and number 2. Did you follow that? Me either. All right. Well, moving on. Verse 3. He sends a letter instead. Verse 3b says that his whole point is to restore relationships. Uh, and he said, I was writing so that we'd all be on the same page. If we fix this thing, we'll all share joy. That was the point. So he's saying in verse 24 of the last chapter in your text, he says, I didn't use my apostolic authority that God gave me uh, to boss you around or to say, you got to do this. I'm using it because I love you. God's given me authority to, to build you up, not to tear you down, not to abuse you. Because he's being accused. Look, he throws his weight around, you know, he tells everybody how to, what to do. He's so controlling, you know. And he says, no, no. I use God's authority to help facilitate reconciliation here. And so he went back there and it caused a lot of anguish. He said, I wrote, I, I was under great stress, a lot of anguish, brokenhearted, weeping. And he said, my intention was not to upset you, but to reveal how much I love you. And so 
One writer said this about the problem maker, the troublemaker who's caused all of this chaos for this little church. He said this, whatever was going on in Corinth needed to be publicly dealt with. Believers who flagrantly sin against others in a church family in a public way need to deal with making amends publicly and painstakingly. Confession and making restitution is humiliating and painful. And oftentimes, we'd rather sweep things under the carpet, say a quick I'm sorry, give a lame excuse, and move on as if nothing really happened. But serious sinning involves serious consequences, and when the guilty parties are uncooperative, as in this case, it just multiplies the pain, and the trouble only gets worse. The good news, Romans 8.28, God uses all things, works it all together for good, is that we have 2 Corinthians because of him. One guy. And he's a brother. You're going to meet him. You're going to meet him. Yeah, I was the troublemaker. Do you want to be, you, you know the two girls in, uh, the two gals in Philippians? who cause a, almost cause a church split there? Euodia and Sintiki, their names. That was part of the problem, was their names. <laughs> but they were fighting and fighting. How would you like to get to heaven and, and, and find out you were a lot of work, you were trouble to the church, and not a peacemaker? That's what I have down here. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be somebody who brings peace. Not somebody who causes a problem where there was no problem. Now, in his case, he caused a problem where he made a big problem. And I'm talking about all the people who fan this and fan that. And so that's the bottom line. So four takeaways from tonight's chapter here. One, we must treat one another with love. When there's disappointments and petty misunderstandings, to assume the best. Assume the best of people and keep our hearts soft and extend mercy and grace. That's one. Number two, we must make our decisions in life according to the wisdom of the Bible and not the thinking of this world. Number three, people can let us down even when they don't intend to. The plans of man may fail us, but God is the one we look to and he will never fail because Jesus is the yes to all God's promises for you and for me. And finally, wherever God plants us in a church family, we strive to be a blessing. <laughs> we strive not to be a trouble causer or a maker, but a peacemaker and a problem solver. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. We look to you now just to... Help us uh, settle on these thoughts and apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. Sometimes it feels like I'm breathing.